Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Two stories for you today, both from St. Paul. The first is a rather bizarre one, involving the legendary Dakota Indian chief, Sitting Bull, who had a close encounter with a crazed St. Paulite on a visit here in 1884. And in the second part, an interview about the contract murder of a man in St. Paul, wanted by the New York outfit Murder Incorporated in 1932. Let's begin. It was at 320 Wabasha Street that St. Paul's Grand Opera House once sat, and where a fascinating event took place almost lost in the annals of St. Paul history. The Grand Opera House in its day was one of the landmark buildings that put St. Paul on the map. It sat approximately where the Chamber Building now meets the Radisson Hotel. When one sent a postcard to family out east, there was a good chance that the beautiful, stately facade of the Grand Opera House would be the picture on the front that would be proudly mailed. During a time when an evening's entertainment meant a night at a concert or a play, the Grand Opera House was a place where the city's elite could enjoy a genteel and refined night out. A matinee performance of a play called My Partner was performed at the Grand Opera House on the afternoon of Thursday, September 4th, 1884, and the show was received enthusiastically by all attending patrons. A special guest was also in attendance, Sitting Bull. The day before the performance, the St. Paul Dispatch newspaper advertised the play as a special opportunity 
to see Sitting Bull in person. He was passing through, on parole from the federal government, and signed to a contract as a living exhibit, along with an entire entourage of Indians with varying levels of fame, including his wife, seen by the nation, Princess Red Spear, Spotted Hornbull, and Gray Buffalo Woman. The show was known as the Sitting Bull Combination and meant to educate white people on the ways of the Western Plains Indians. Colonel Elverin Allen, Sitting Bull's promoter, had arranged to open their new show in New York City, their next destination after Minnesota. In their stop in St. Paul, however, they were guests and attendees at the Grand Opera House that day, and Sitting Bull and his comrades thoroughly enjoyed the play that afternoon. After the show, Sitting Bull's party left their box seats once the theater was cleared and walked out single file through the lobby of the Opera House where they were to meet their transportation back to their hotel. A few of the curious stayed behind to view the famous Native American. Sitting Bull himself walked forth in file, and as their party slowly made their way through the lobby, eyewitnesses watching the spectacle soon saw something even more amazing unfurl before their eyes. From the crowd of oglers, a man stepped forward, described as having a large hooked nose of medium height and dressed in gray clothes and a black slouch cap. He had a thick gray mustache and side whiskers. His friend next to him was shorter, dressed in a brown suit and had a brown mustache. Without notice or hesitation, the gray-mustached man leveled a short, nickel-plated, British bulldog-style pistol directly at Sitting Bull. Witnesses were certain the man would not have paused to pull the trigger, and the revolver was aimed close range at Sitting Bull's back. However, his companion, the brown-mustached man, reached out with lightning speed and struck down the gray-mustached man's arm, slamming the pistol's barrel out of danger's way. He then wrenched it from the gray-mustached man's hand and put the gun in his own pocket. He whispered in a low, urgent voice to the would-be assassin, Don't make a fool of yourself. The gray-mustached man replied, Give me a gun and let me shoot the damn SOB. Damn him, I'll shoot him. According to witnesses, the gray-mustached man was not drunk, but highly agitated and seemed in deadly earnest, ready and willing to kill Sitting Bull. It didn't seem that Sitting Bull himself was really even aware of how close he came to death at that moment, and he and his compatriots continued from the lobby to their waiting wagons outside and simply got on and rode away. The gray mustache man and his friend 
walked out behind them and continued down the street and out of the story. A St. Paul dispatch reporter went directly to the merchant's hotel as soon as he had gotten word of the near assassination in an attempt to interview Sitting Bull himself about the incident. He was refused entrance, but did get an earful from Colonel Allen, there to speak on behalf of the Indian chief. This is just what I shall not permit, replied Colonel Allen, to the question posed by the reporter regarding Sitting Bull's reaction to the attempt on his life. He knows nothing about it, and I do not intend that anyone should get near him. He would be scared and I don't mean to have him scared. I have a guard at the door, and no one will be allowed to enter. Little afterwards is mentioned in the city's newspapers about the subject, but it is an interesting little anecdote to St. Paul's unseemly history to think that the city might potentially have been the site of the murder of an American historical icon only adds to the legend of St. Paul and its notorious criminal history. And now on to the interview portion of our show today. I'm so pleased to have as my guest Jeff Newberger, researcher and archivist for the St. Paul Police Historical Society. He has a wealth of knowledge on true crime history in St. Paul and in a special position for great insight on a lot of cases as he has access to files and photos and information within the SPPD that us regular <laughs> Joes don't. So, so thank you for joining me today, Jeff. Oh, you're welcome. So you and I met for lunch last week and we talked a lot about St. Paul true crime related subject matters, but one event in particular fascinates me to no end, and, and you've done a lot of your own research on this this topic. It was a murder that happened on University Avenue, and you've graciously agreed to come on and tell us what you know about the murder, what you've learned on your own, dots that you've connected, etc., and what the ramifications were regarding this killing, not just in St. Paul, but in New York as well. And some very important crime figures are a part of the story that many of us are very, very familiar with. So let's start with the murder itself. It was a guy named Wagner who came to St. Paul in 1932. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, tell us who this guy was and what brought him to the city to begin with. Okay. Uh, Abe Wagner was in St. Paul believed to be he was kind of hiding out. He was wanted by the police and uh, New York gangsters for some occurrences out there. Uh, he hadn't actually been here that long. In March of 32, he was seen near Hopewell, New Jersey, and was considered a suspect in the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's son. So in he's, the, the killing here in St. Paul was in July of 32. So it's a kind of a small window. Um, he was uh, partners here with a guy named Al Gordon, who had been was a convicted narcotics dealer. And I think we'll just go right to the murder. Uh, okay, July twenty fifth, nineteen thirty two, 
Gordon and his ex-wife went into the Courtney Pharmacy on University in Snelling to get a prescription. While they were inside, Abe Wagner came in, and the men left and went out to a Chevy parked on the street. And as they did, two other men got out of a Packard sedan, George Young and Joe Schaefer, and began shooting at the two men. Gordon was hit in the lung, grabbed a street pole, and collapsed down, dying. Uh, Wagner was hit but ran around the corner, Snelling University, this would be then south on Snelling, through the Snelling Hotel, out the back, into the back courtyard, and ended up in the kitchen of the Green Dragon restaurant. All this time, of course, Young and Schaefer are shooting at him. So then he's hit a few times, bullets are in the you know, walls and stairwells, and by the time they catch up to him inside the kitchen, they're out of bullets. And in sight of the cook, uh, Mrs. Helen Schultz, they begin pistol whipping Wagner. And then they eventually run off. Unfortunately for them, they ran west toward Roy Street, and their ride, uh, driven by a Cadillac driven by a guy named William Weissman and a guy named Nick Delmore, was waiting for them on, out on Snelling. And they were apprehended by St. Paul Police Officer Ernest Kaler. So that wrong turn for them cost them 33 years in prison. Did they put up a fight when they were captured? No. They had, um, um, you know, the guns, they actually had abandoned their guns. As I say, they were empty. And uh, they, of course, you know, said, like to the police, what, I I didn't do anything. But the officer, uh, Kaler, had a description from the cook as far as who, who they were, she was, he was looking for. So they were arrested. The only fight they put up, and this is, again, it's mentioned in Maccabee's book, when they were brought in the police headquarters to be photographed, um, the one of them refused to be photographed, and they had basically had to have like four officers grab them and hold them. And the, I believe the reason they he didn't want to be photographed was they were both wanted for the murder of a federal prohibition agent in September 1930 in New Jersey. So they've been arrested by St. Paul police. How do things proceed from there, and and how are they eventually connected to Murder Incorporated? Okay, they were. Um, it's like I say, this is July of. 25th, 32. Their trial wasn't until October. So evidence was gathered, you know, over the course of the summer. Uh, Attempts were made to spring them. Supposedly $25,000 was offered to the St. Paul Police Chief Tom Dayhill to let them escape. Um, Witnesses where they tried to fabricate testimony saying that they weren't there. The typical kind of uh, murder ink kind of stuff about try to intimidate witnesses. But I think for my own take on it is they reached, they, they reached a little too far. It was a little outside of their bailiwick um, to be able to really effectively intimidate witnesses, particularly this cook, Mrs. Schultz, test was probably the, one of the strongest witnesses against them, that they were the two guys that had killed Wagner. Maybe we should uh, back up for a moment. Um could you explain what Murder Incorporated was and Wagner, Schaefer, and Young's connection to the organization? Okay, it was Murder Inc. was actually a name given to the it by the newspapers. Um, the, obviously, the mafia never called it that. Um, when Luciano reorganized the mob in 1931, the for want of a better phrase, Murder Inc. was their enforcement arm. 
they were a group of killers, usually working under the control of Louis Burkhalter. Um, and the idea was that they could go kill a guy and the guy would never know who they were because they were just given the contract to kill this guy. They had no connection to him. Of course, in most murders, you know, the victim knows the guy, he's a friend, he's an enemy. But these guys would just show up, shoot you, and leave. And, you know, like I say, it made it really hard for the police to try to figure out who was the guy that killed them. Um, and it actually had been only recently organized, uh, as I say, in like 1931. The two killers, Young and Schaefer, had been uh, Philadelphia gang members. And just to clarify, Luciano is Lucky Luciano, for those listeners not aware. <laughs> yes, yes. And Bugsy Siegel, Meyer Lansky, and, and Frank Costello, uh, they were also involved in Murder, Inc., right? Uh, Siegel and Lansky more so. I, I don't really know so much. Costello was like an underboss of Luciano's. So he certainly could have had someone killed, but the actual direct Murder, Inc. type thing was... Um, like I say, Burkhalter, uh, Albert Anastasia, who was a, another mob member. So why did Wagner come to St. Paul? And why were these men, Schaefer and Young, dispatched to the city to find him? Well, I mean, some of these questions are kind of, you know, what do you want to call it? I, I, you have to sort of make, the, I guess, like make a guess. Uh, Wagner had a friend living here named John Loeb, who he was staying with at the time of his death. As a matter of fact, while he was in St. Paul, he was using the alias Abe Loeb. And that kind of made, at first, identification kind of hard because the police kept identifying him as Abe Loeb. As a matter of fact, if you look him up in Minnesota death records, the death certificate does not say Abe Wagner. It says Abe Loeb. And for quite a while, the police denied Wagner and Loeb were the same man because they didn't want a, a nationally wanted criminal known to be hiding in St. Paul, make them look bad. But Wagner's mother, the day after the murder, told the papers in New York, she had got a telegram from her daughter-in-law saying that Abe had been killed in St. Paul. Please wire $25 to send the body home. So she was saying, you know, yeah, my son's dead in St. Paul. At the same time, the police were denying that the dead man was Wagner. Um, a little, more, I could say, more background on Abe Wagner and his brother Albert, known as Alley Wagner, were uh, had a gang of their own on the Lower East Side in New York, where they were they had uh, bootlegging and narcotics they were selling, and it was kind of typical for that era gang war going on. Um, in October 1930, their one of their places had been raided uh, with a tip from probably another gangster. A large quantity of narcotics was seized, some machine guns, ammunition, and two men were arrested. Uh, at the end of the month on October 31st, the Wagners did a little payback and killed two mobsters named Larry Viscardi and Charles Greco with a Thompson submachine gun. So there was kind of an ongoing gang war between the Wagners, which who were Jewish, and the Italian members of the organized crime. In February, on February 20th, 1931, Abe Wagner was driving his car in New York on Suffolk Street to a meeting when somebody across the street, two men across the street, opened up on him with shotguns and fired eight rounds, four rounds of each shotgun at him, 
Luckily for him, the car took the damage, and he was able to escape out the passenger side door. That same night, a man named John Mazza, a gangster, was killed, presumably by the Wagners. And this is what kind of gets into, uh, if you would say to Google um, Abe Wagner, there's going to be a lot of mention about the Mazza gang, M-A-Z-Z-A. And this is John Mazza where the name comes from, that um, it was the Mazza gang that wanted Wagner dead. Well, my research has shown, at least proved to me that I'm not the only one. There's a New York author named Patrick Downey said the same thing. There really wasn't a Mazza gang. John Mazza was a low-level gangster. As a matter of fact, when he was killed, he was 20 years old, and he had a nickel in his pocket. So that doesn't exactly sound like a gang leader. Gang member, maybe, but not a leader. This Mazza gang comes about later in the 50s when a guy named Burton Turkus, who a, was a Brooklyn prosecutor who prosecuted a lot of the killers for Murder, Inc., um, wrote a book called Murder, Inc., and said that it was the Mazza gang that killed uh, Wagner. And the reason he thought so was John Mazza was killed on February 20th. Well, on February 21st, of course, the Wagner, or the, Al, Al Wagner was killed in New York. So he, he kind of made that connection. But I agree with, like I say, with Patrick Downey that this Mazza gang was kind of a made-up um, connection. Oh, so February, February 21st, then 31, that's the next day after the attempt on Abe's wife, uh, life, there's a peace conference at a hotel in New York called the Hatfield House on the seventh floor, which the building is still there. Al Wagner attends, Abe Wagner attends, and Harry Brown, another member of the gang, attends. The speculation on who, who's on the other side is by police is possibly Joe Masseria, who was then the head of New York's mafia called Joe the Boss. And uh, at some point during the meeting, Abe supposedly left to make get a phone call or make a phone call. And then all, supposedly an argument broke out and Al Wagner gets shot three times in the chest, once in the head. Harry Brown gets shot five times. And Abe Wagner escapes, possibly wounded, possibly not. That's still to be researched. Um, from then on, he's essentially on the run. And as I say, eventually we'll end up in St. Paul in July of 32. Gosh, I wonder how they knew he, he was here in St. Paul. Uh, it, it's probably one of those questions you, you just have to kind of guess the answer to, right? Again, yeah, I guess. Um, it's, you know, again, it's not known what his activities were. He called himself a fruit peddler, a, a, a Wagner or a Blobe, as his alias was. But as I say, he had been in the narcotics business. Al Gordon, his partner, had been convicted for narcotics. So as the saying goes, the fruit they were dealing with was probably the fruit of the poppy. And they may have stepped on some toes of local, um, you know, gangsters. Interesting. There is a connection to the famed gangster, gambler, and mentor to Luciano and Lansky, Arnold Rothstein, right? Right. Um, in the 1920s, Rothstein had controlled bootlegging and narcotics in New York. And... In November of 1920, he was killed, supposedly over not paying a debt on a poker game of $600,000. And after his death, that kind of opened things up for a lot more independent contractors. 
Waxy Gordon, who was a subordinate of Rothstein's, tried to take over his uh, bootlegging and narcotics empire, but there were a lot of up-and-comers, and the Wagner brothers would have been part of that up-and-coming. Um, you know, they essentially grabbed a piece of the business. Now, obviously, there were other gangsters on the Lower East Side that were also trying to grab a piece of the business, and they would have had reasons to want to see the Wagners out of the way. So when we talk about gangster history in St. Paul, most of our minds go directly to John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, the O'Connor system, etc. And it's so far out to think about this connection between Murder, Inc., the actual New York mafia in St. Paul uh, in the early 30s. Yeah, that's part of what's, to me, fascinating about this particular case is the, the national uh, connection. So Schaefer and Young, it's found out later that these are actually aliases that they go under, right? Right. George Young's real name was Albert Silverberg, and Joe Schaefer's real name was Nathan Winger. When would their real names become known? Well, I mean, I, they, they knew it, and I believe they knew that, uh, that the, the two men had been wanted for uh, the Prohibition agent's death. As a matter of fact, um, Young and Schaefer actually worked as part of a four-man hit team that were that was wanted for that Prohibition agent's murder. The other two members were William Weissman and Nick Delmore. Weissman was driving the car that I mentioned that went around the block and was waiting for the men on Snelling, but they went the wrong direction, and Delmore was in the car too. Uh, Weissman would be arrested but was released. Delmore, to the best of my knowledge, got away, and coincidentally would later in the 50s become the mob boss of uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and retired in 1964, dying shortly thereafter. So while they were doing their time in prison, their partner Delmore was rising up in the ranks of the mob. Do you know much about the trials? Did did people come from New York to defend them? Okay, well, one thing I'm um, again, this is to give credit due where it's due from Maccabee's book. Meyer Lansky flew out from New York to St. Paul, landing at Holman Field, and brought along a uh, Philadelphia congressman named Ben Gold, supposedly to testify to. Uh, Young and Schaefer's upstanding character. Uh, unfortunately for Young and Schaefer, it didn't work, and they were convicted in November of the deaths of Wagner and Gordon, receiving a life sentence. And then, of course, in those days, life was 30-plus years. So in 1963, they were both paroled and returned to Philadelphia. Um, Schaefer would die in Florida in 1982, and Wing, or excuse me, and Young would die in Philadelphia in 1970. What was the, the defense's strategy uh, besides bringing in witnesses that testified to their outstanding character? Well, they, they would. They had witnesses saying I, they weren't there; they were here. You know, um, they were with me. As a matter of fact, the Ramsey County Attorney Michael Kincaid charged a couple guys with perjury for testifying that. You know, that Young and Schaefer had, you know, been with them, not at the the murder. Which is funny because they were picked up just minutes after the murder, right? <laughs> just a half a block down the street. Right. Right. 
Well, I, re- I remember reading in Maccabee's book, and, and you've already alluded to this, um, it's Bugsy Siegel who comes to St. Paul multiple times, um, staying in downtown hotels. Right, the Lowry. He, um, yeah, later in the 30s when they were already in prison, there were a couple attempts, or several attempts actually, to try to free them either you know, through bribery, which is uh, Siegel was trying to get the governor to pardon them, and then supposedly this and this was sounds like a Siegel idea because he was known for his kind of wild schemes. A New York mobster named uh, Jack Parisi was supposedly had to come up with a plan. They were going to dynamite the wall at Stillwater, and so the two guys could escape, and Parisi would get thirty five thousand dollars. But that plan never came to fruition. And again, it's mentioned a lot in Maccabee's book. While they were in prison. Young and Schaefer, they did not live the life of an ordinary convict. They had special privileges because a monthly stipend was paid to to their prison. So they lived better. They they had their own in a, in their cells. Um, what do you call it? a coffee pot, electric uh, hot plate, so they could cook like steak. So they weren't eating say what the regular prisoners were eating. Kind of if you ever seen the movie Got Goodfellas, how oh, when they're in prison they live a, l- a little better life than the rest of the prisoners. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> They're thinly slicing the garlic um, for their pasta right, sauce, exactly. right? <laughs> I, I don't think they had quite that nice of an arrangement, but they, uh, like I say, they ate better than the prisoners. Alcohol could be provided to them. Uh, so, granted, I mean, they were still in prison, but it was made somewhat a little better. And they too, they never did talk. They, you know, they were asked, you know, as far as who, who sent you, who ordered the hit, and they never talked. Um, even when they were released, uh, Schaefer was briefly interviewed on his way out of town and maintained that it was self-defense that uh, Loeb, as he called him, Wagner's alias, was trying to kidnap him so that he had to kill him. Oh, interesting. Do you know what their, their later lives were like? D- did they turn to crime again after being released from prison? Uh, again, my research, I believe they were essentially provided with a living for their, if you want to call it, adherence to the oath, for not talking, and for doing the time. Um, both of them were giving, given like um, bookmaking operations, you know, um, sports betting. So they, they had, I mean, they weren't, I don't think wealthy, but they were not poor. Um, as I say, uh, Schaefer ends up in Florida and marries in his later days. So, uh, you know, he. I, it sounds like he had maybe a little bit more comfortable life than than Young. Young died a little bit earlier. He, as I say, he died in 1970. Schaefer died in Miami in 80, it's either 82, 84. I think it was 84. Uh, was there anything that you discovered in researching this story as as being especially interesting to you, where you thought, "Wow, no one has ever made these connections before." Um, well, that makes me sound, I think, a little immodest, but, um, one of the things now, the re one of the reasons I think maybe Young and Schaefer were chosen to complete this mission was that they had spent the previous summer hiding out in St. Paul after the killing of that prohibition agent. So they knew the area and they were known by local gangsters, um, Young and Schaefer, that summer, this would be the summer of 31, 
and Delmore and Weissman were all here in town having fun. They were staying in White Bear Lake, and they hung out a lot of time at the Plantation Nightclub there, where the gambling was controlled by Robert Steinhardt, nicknamed Frisco Dutch. And while there, they, of course, had female companionship, and um, they had met Violet Nordquist, who was the girlfriend of Jack Pfeiffer. So presumably, if they met her, they met Jack. And actually, they had a little bit too much fun while they were here in St. Paul because uh, Young was treated by a doctor for venereal disease. And for listeners who may not be aware, would you you mind explaining who he was briefly, uh, Jack Pfeiffer, and his involvement in the Hollyhocks Club? Sure. Uh, Pfeiffer was a St. Paul gangster, um, and he, uh, he owned a house on Mississippi Boulevard that was a restaurant and gambling casino called the Hollyhocks Club. The house is still there. Of course, it's a private residence now. Lived there with his girlfriend, later wife, Violet Pfeiffer. Um, was involved in the kidnapping of William Ham, and would be convicted for that kid for the kidnapping. And then, prior to being to prison, killed himself in the Ramsey County Jail. And supposedly his ghost still haunts the Landmark Center, which is where he the trial was held, and then the federal courthouse. It's it's kind of incestuous sometimes, you know, all, all these relationships between these guys. And what a strange connection between Pfeiffer and Murder, Inc. I mean, he, he was far more famous locally for being in cahoots with the Barker Carpus gang and the, the Dillinger Van Meter outfit. Right. And again, I you know I don't want to get too speculative. It's possible that you know either Pfeiffer or Harry Sawyer might have tipped off the guys that Wagner was in St. Paul, the you know the New York operation. Because I don't think it was like they really had spies you know around the country. But if you know Sawyer and Pfeiffer both had bootlegging connections all over the country and in Cuba, so it wouldn't have been hard to do. One thing I thought I just found it's it's kind of not off topic, but an interesting character. Uh, Abe Wagner was married. He married a woman named Goldie. Well, her name was Filson when the married maiden name in 1927, and they had a son, Marvin. Wagner and his wife and son were here in St. Paul, so they were all living with this the John Loeb that I had mentioned. And after the um, when Wagner was killed. And the, at the arraignment of Young and Schaefer, Goldie Wagner struck George Young and tried to kick Joe Schaefer, but was stopped by deputies. She apparently had a little bit of a anger issue because it, it seemed back in New York after Al, Al Wagner's death at the funeral, a newspaper photographer tried to take a picture of the cortege. She threw her purse at the photographer. <laughs> Well, that's a, a humorous little aside <laughs> to a story that on the whole isn't very funny, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'd like to, to switch gears and ask you about your work with the St. Paul Police Department for a moment. You've got a, you've got a great exhibit over there. Um, lots of photographs and police and true crime artifacts out for display. W- would you mind telling us about that? Certainly. Um, I, I mostly do photos. So, you know, I, we've had copies made of photos and they're, you know, framed and, and put up in the hallways. 
in particular, in what we're talking about today, uh, I have what I call my gangster gallery. There's about 40 pictures dealing with St. Paul's gangster era, pictures of, you know, Danny Hogan's blown up car, um, a lot of the stuff, uh, the Van Meter killing by, by St. Paul police, uh, the kidnappings on Bremer and Ham. And then just most recently, I've put up photos of the Green Lantern Saloon, which was, of course, the the big gangster hangout in St. Paul. But you, among other things, have the actual straw boater's hat that Homer Van Meter was wearing when he was shot down. That Homer Homer Van Meter was wearing. We also have the the wire that was ran from the bomb to the starter of Danny Hogan's car. That's uh, that's on display. Uh, that was um, actually some of these art- artifacts were saved from destruction in the eight, 1980s. The Public Safety Building, which is where the police headquarters is, was located, was being remodeled, and a lot of stuff was just getting junked as, as it was old and get rid of it. And some officers were able to retrieve some of these things before they were thrown away. I, I don't even want to think about the things that were thrown away that we would love to have now old files and photos. And just so people aren't confused, uh, Helen Schultz worked at the Green Dragon restaurant, which was different from the Green Lantern Saloon in downtown St. Paul. Right. The the Green Dragon was on Snelling, um, and the Green Lantern was on Wabashat. Well, this has been excellent. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to chat with me. Uh, maybe down the road we can have another conversation about some of the research you do at the, the St. Paul Police Historical Society. Certainly, I'd be happy to. Well, thanks again for listening to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. We'll be back again next week. And Pearson's Bring Back the 7-Up Bar again. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs>